Good morning, everyone. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, Beginnings and endings are important, right? For the last three weeks, we've been spending time in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, encountering the risen Christ with those early disciples. And today, just read, was that final verse of Luke's Gospel. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God or blessing God, in another translation. So if someone randomly discovered this Gospel of Luke, and it was the only scripture they had, this would be the ending. The disciples meet the risen Lord, and they go back to the temple, continually praising or blessing God. So keep that in mind. Now let's say there's two realms, two dimensions of reality. There's God's space, and there's our space, or human space, or what we call heaven and earth. Okay? Now we obviously understand our space, or human space, fairly well. I mean, we have rivers and trees, forests, mountains, things we can see, things we can put under the microscope. We understand it fairly well. There's still a good bit of mystery and confusion, but we understand it fairly well. But God's space, heaven, that's quite the mystery to us. What comes to mind when you think of God's space, when you think of heaven? What comes to your imagination? Is it angels floating on clouds, you know, playing the harp beautifully? Or is it sort of six-winged creatures floating about, singing hallelujah? Is it streets of gold? How big is your mansion? Or maybe it's some sort of idyllic picture of paradise, Right? You're on your own pristine piece of sand, of beach in the Caribbean. No one's there to bother you, just the family you enjoy, just the friends you want to spend time with. And of course, there's a pool boy to bring the bottomless beachside margaritas. Do any of these come to mind when you think of heaven? Well, beginnings and endings are important. And these two distinct realms, heaven and earth, they get talked about quite a bit throughout Scripture, but especially in the beginning of Genesis and the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Christian Scriptures. And what's amazing about the portrayal of these two realms in the beginning of the book of Genesis is that they overlap. And if you imagine two circles with me, heaven can be blue, the earth can be red. They don't just overlap like a Venn diagram, creating a bit of purple in the middle. They overlap completely. It's all purple in the beginning. 
right? This is the Garden of Eden. It's the place where God and humanity dwell together perfectly. No separation. Where God walks in the cool of the breeze, in the cool breeze of the day. In Genesis 1 to about somewhere in mid-3, the whole earth is the temple. The place where heaven and earth fully overlap, where God's presence is everywhere. And in the center of this Garden of Eden, His presence is most tangible, most condensed in this tree of life. It's a tree whose fruit is life itself. A tree bearing abundant life, eternal life for those who would eat of it. The original intent of creation is that humans partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful, full of life world that has no end. Humanity, in partnership with God, is meant to take the raw material of God's creation, of God's good creation, what he has made, and fashion it into culture to add creativity to his already creative creation. Art, technology, government even, cooking, creating, conceiving new life, and using resources well and wonderfully. This is all part of the original design. But we didn't really want to partner with God. We don't really want to collaborate with God. I mean, we can do it on our own. Thank you very much. So in this story, humanity chooses to eat from a different tree, not the tree of life. The only tree they're told not to to eat of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why? So we can make decisions and judgments on our own based on what we see as right, apart from God. And in doing so, we ask for earth to be our space and ours alone. Heaven and earth are separated. We're kicked out of that overlapping place of delight, the Garden of Eden. And as Genesis continues, we get these little moments where heaven and earth sort of meet. They bump. Maybe they overlap a tiny bit. But it's not until Moses leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt that God says, you know what? I'm going to dwell with you again in this sort of constant, tangible place of overlap called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this traveling temple, this traveling place where heaven and earth meet. This time, though, it is like a Venn diagram. It's not, it's not completely purple. There's this little sliver, blue heaven, red earth, small portion of purple, heaven and earth overlapping in the middle. Now later, once Israel has her own land and some constancy, they're not traveling around and through the wilderness, they get a permanent temple. 
It becomes the biggest building on the tallest hill in the city. It's the first thing you see when you enter into town, way up there. Why? Because all of life revolves around this place where heaven and earth meet, where they overlap. But, of course, there's a problem. Heaven, God's space, full of God's glory, His beauty, His justice, His goodness. And then, in our disobedience, earth is full of what? Sin, injustice, selfishness, greed, chaos, destruction, We don't have to look around too much to notice that these things still exist. So how can they overlap? How can these realms even a little bit overlap without heaven being made less beautiful, less good? The only way for heaven to overlap even partially with earth again is if something could make at least a part of our space clean. And this is the whole idea of Israel's sacrificial system. Somehow, our sin and uncleanness gets absorbed into an animal, which is then sacrificed in our place, which creates a clean space where heaven and earth can overlap once more. But it's not uh, constant. It's, it fades away. That cleanness fades again away because, because we sin again. The clean space is made unclean, and so the sacrifices must be made over and over and over again. This is the only way to encounter the presence of God. And even then, at the center of the temple, the place where his presence is most condensed again, that's only accessible by one person once a year, the high priest. But for Israel, even this is worth it. Why? Because for that particular moment in time, in that particular place, heaven and earth are one. They overlap. And it is a moment of shalom, of holistic peace. You might be wondering where I'm going with this. They don't talk about this in our scripture. Why are we talking so much about this? Just stay with me. Creates this moment in time and place of shalom, holistic peace. This is why Israel rebuilds the temple after they go out into exile and it gets destroyed. They come back and they're so adamant on rebuilding this temple. This is why shortly before Jesus comes, the Maccabees, they revolt against the Hellenistic rulers of the day because the temple is desecrated by this person named Antiochus Epiphanes. And so the Maccabees revolt. They go against all sort of reigning government over them and they cleanse the temple. This is why King Herod, definitely not the best Jew in town at that time, he knows that beautifying and restoring the temple will be his wisest political move if he wants the hearts of the Jewish people. The temple, even up to the time and days of Jesus, is the place of holistic peace, even if just for moments. 
And that's really the glorious truth that we heard about in our Old Testament lesson from the prophet Haggai this morning. In, in Haggai 2.9, he says, The latter glory of this house, this house being the temple, shall be greater than the former. So what's happening in this temple, the presence of God will be even better in the future says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, in this overlapping place of heaven and earth, I will give peace. In the Hebrew, shalom, declares the Lord of hosts. In this place, in this temple, is where shalom will come. Eugene Peterson translates it this way in the message. That same verse, Haggai 2.9. This temple is going to end up far better than it started out. A glorious beginning, but an even more glorious finish. A place in which I will hand out wholeness and holiness. I'd like to go to that temple. We often translate that Hebrew word shalom as peace. And and it is peace. But it's not just uh, an internal peaceful feeling. And it's certainly not piecing out when things are stressful or there's an awkward situation. It is peace, but more than the absence of war or worry, it's an everything made right, human flourishing kind of peace. It's comprehensive, spiritually, emotionally, socially, relationally, culturally, even vocationally. Internal peace, yes but also peace between genders. Peace between races and ethnicities. Peace for the foreigner and the native. Peace between and even within families. Peace with the earth. This kind of peace, this kind of shalom, is less about absence and more about presence. It's peace that is only possible with the presence of God. The temple, the place of heaven and earth meeting, heaven and earth overlapping, is the place of peace. Now in the Gospels, Jesus is described as the temple. In John 1.14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt is the word tabernacle. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He was the temple here. Jesus is the new temple, the walking, breathing, beating heart temple. That's why in John chapter later, 2, verses 19 through 21, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus, the God-man, becomes for us the embodiment of heaven on earth. This is why Jesus goes around saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
It's within arm's reach. It's right here. That's why he teaches us to pray like we do every Sunday. Thy will be done. Or thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let these places overlap again. His plan and purpose is to once again and forever reunite heaven and earth. And this is only possible because like John the Baptist proclaims about this Jesus, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's both the temple and the temple sacrifice. The cross absorbs the sins of the world, which create a clean space for heaven and earth to overlap again. Heaven and earth are being reunited in Jesus, and one day they will completely overlap once more. Beginnings and endings are important. And our Christian scriptures end with Revelation chapters 21 and 22, which talk again about heaven and earth being fully overlapped. Here's 21 verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And what happens in that temple? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He will dwell with us. This is temple language. And in case it wasn't clear enough, later in that chapter, Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23, and I saw no temple in the city. Hmm? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The whole story just like our gospel text today, ends in a temple. It ends with shalom. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Everywhere is the temple. And that kind of shalom, this heaven and earth overlapping kind of peace, this everything put in its proper place kind of peace, this holistic human flourishing kind of peace, this shalom is how the resurrected Jesus greets his disciples in Luke 24, verse 36, the beginning of our scripture. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus shows up and offers shalom. But the disciples are startled and frightened, the verse says, thinking they saw a ghost. 
To them, Jesus is, at best, this sort of specter of aspiration. A sort of apparition of optimism. A hologram of hope. A poltergeist of peace. And maybe when I stand here telling you of the promise and possibility of shalom, I sound like that too. Maybe I'm some ghost of the past. I'm unaware, right, of the current issues, both internally within you and externally in the world. Maybe you're thinking, Matt, you have no idea what I'm going through right now. You don't know about my past. You don't know what I did this weekend. You don't know what I wished I could have done this weekend. If you really knew me, you'd know there's no chance of this shalom that you're speaking about ever coming into my life. Or maybe you're thinking, Matt, you are so unaware of the complexities and issues in this current cultural moment. If you actually knew the depth of the racial and socioeconomic divides, if you actually knew the suffering happening around the world and in America, you wouldn't think peace was possible either. You're like some ghost from the past, foolishly optimistic. Well, to the disciples who betrayed, abandoned, and backstabbed Jesus. To the disciples hiding behind a locked door for fear of that cultural moment, Jesus stands among them and says, Peace be with you. And when they're terrified and they think it's a ghost, a spirit, a phantom with them. Jesus replies in 38 to 40, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In his disciples' fear and doubt, Jesus gives of his most vulnerable self. He says, touch me on my wounds. You do realize how he could have responded, right? He could have said, fine, don't believe me. Do you realize what I just did for you? I died on the cross for you, you ungrateful doubters. Forget it, I'm gone. I'm going to someone else. But instead of rage or payback or implementing his power... He gives them his weakness. He gives them his wounds. True vulnerability. The word vulnerability, by the way, 
comes from the Latin vulnerare, which literally means to wound. So Jesus offers them his wounds, his vulnerability, his flesh and bones. And it gives his disciples, it says, this joy and amazement, but not yet faith. In fact, somehow their joy and amazement is getting in the way of their belief. I'm not sure how that works, but that's what it says. It's only after he sits and eats some baked fish with them and then teaches the scriptures that they become open. It says, it says he opens their minds to the realities of the scriptures. It's funny that the text says it's baked fish. Why does it have to clarify baked fish? Uh, it's strange to me. I would have preferred grilled fish. We used to have a grill, and I would grill fish quite often. What I prefer about that is that your house doesn't stink like fish. We baked some salmon last night, and it still, I woke up this morning and was like, ugh, it still smells. Why baked fish? I don't know. Maybe he wanted the full sensory experience to smell the fish. But he tells him in verse 49, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. What his father has promised is the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit that in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to as the helper. He says in John 14, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying it is better to have the Holy Spirit with you than to have him physically in your presence. What? How on earth is that possible? Well, it's possible because it creates heaven on earth. You and I, the church becomes the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, which means we are the dwelling place of God, the temple of the living God. This is why Paul later proclaims in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? In Christ, by the Spirit, you are the place that heaven and earth collide. That they overlap. Again, in John 14, Jesus says this. This is 25 to 27. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he says, peace I leave with you. Shalom. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the same spirit that Jesus greets the disciples with, the spirit of peace. And he writes, says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, 
but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is all about, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Otherwise, we'd be praying, Lord, let us die, leave this earth as fast as possible, and get to heaven. We don't pray that. Let's continue on with the last three verses. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Beginnings and endings are important. The Bible begins with a temple, the Garden of Eden. And it ends with the whole earth as the temple of God. The Gospel of Luke begins in the temple. And it ends in the temple. If you remember, if you've read the beginning of Luke, you know that after his own little personal introduction, the first story he tells is of a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is this priest who goes to the temple to burn incense, offering prayers and sacrifices. You see, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are old and barren. They're in a hopeless situation. But then an angel shows up in the temple. It scares Zechariah. But an angel shows up, offering hope in this hopeless place, and it tells Zechariah that his barren wife is going to conceive and bear a child even in her old age. And Zechariah can't believe it. He questions the angel. He says, how can this be? And what happens is the angel silences Zechariah for quite some time, perhaps a year. So Zechariah leaves the temple with his lips shut. And in the end of Luke's gospel, it's not an angel that shows up to the disciples in their hopeless situation. It's Jesus himself. He offers hope into a hopeless place, and they respond very similarly to Zechariah. How can this possibly be? This cannot be. You're a ghost. They doubt and question. But Jesus, rather than silencing them, he shows, again, his vulnerability, his humanness. He eats some baked fish with them. And he gives them both his vulnerability and his power. And they are filled with purpose. They are not to leave the temple in silence. What happens in Luke's second book, the second chapter of his second book, is that the Holy Spirit, this helper, comes at Pentecost in Acts. And these disciples will then become temples of the living God, seeing the kingdom of heaven come about in their very midst. Now make no mistake, bearing witness to the resurrection will include words, telling the gospel and inviting others in, but it includes more than that. 
One more quote from N.T. Wright, for good measure. The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. End quote. I mean, what a mission. What a sending to go from fear and disbelief to that level of empowerment by Jesus. What a gift. Sign me up. What about you? Let me end here. Where are you at? This moment, this hour. Can you find yourself in any of the disciples? Are you in a place of doubt? Doubt that any of this is actually possible. Doubt that the promises of God are trustworthy. Doubt that good will overcome evil or that the arc of history actually does bend towards justice, towards shalom. Are you in a place of doubt? Well, according to our text, Jesus will sit and have a meal with you. Are you in a place of fear? Fear about your circumstances. Fear about your future. Fear about how people would respond if they really knew you. Or fear about how God would respond if you let him really know you. Well, Jesus will sit and have a meal with you. Are you in a place of amazement, excitement, and bewilderment by the possibility of resurrection, but not yet belief? Jesus will sit and have a meal with you. Where are you at? Because it's only there that God meets you. But what if you realized You, you and me, we are the temple of God. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. So we, together as church, can be an outpost of heaven on earth. God's remedy for fear, for doubt, for bewilderment 
is presence. These disciples are about to be sent into situations that are terrifying, and many of them will lose their lives. But they're empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is with them, and they shall not fear. They are living, breathing, moving temples of the Most High God. And so are we. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.